Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Another week, another show, another author. Another author. But I'm going to ask a general question. Do you write a diary? Not really, not regularly. Well, now I do. And sometimes it's just about what I did in the day. Uh, Sometimes people I meet, but I don't put in too much of that emotional stuff. So, you know, how truthful can you be in a diary? Claire Varley has a number of characters writing about themselves in the book of Ordinary People. Welcome back, Claire. It's been a couple of years. It has. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Okay, well, these people are writing about themselves. Um, Rather than the traditional written diary, what are the other ways people can write about, about ourselves these days? And I think it comes very much through DB. What does he do? So DB um, is like a lot of people. He has a, a back and forth email relationship with one of his friends um, who who he's grown up with and is living on the other side of the world. And they, they share with each other what they're doing and all their milestones in and life. And the honesty about those. And, and it's a very carefully curated version of his life that, that he talks about with his friend because it's the, the version that he thinks he should be telling about. Yes, well then... No, perhaps not completely honest, but there are times we have to, well, here we go, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's a different type of honesty. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the idea of truth or the truth that that we can tell about ourselves is, is a really fascinating idea because, you know, at the end of the day, the version of ourselves that we put out into the world is is often the version that that we want people to know about. So it might be our truth, mm-hmm. um, and it, but it's also our truth then and there when we're writing it and with all the baggage around how we'd like people to perceive us. Yeah, and then it's how we, how we perceive ourselves, isn't it? Because sometimes telling the truth can do so much hurt to ourselves that we'd prefer to not. Absolutely. And I often think about the fact that, you know, so many of us when we were angsty teenagers wrote our diaries and the diaries that we wrote were full of our emotions and how people didn't understand us and how we were meant for these greater things, but the world was tying us down. And then, you know, many years later when you come back to them, there's there's this sense of, of embarrassment or, you know, you just want to give yourself mm. a giant cuddle and, and have a good hard talk about, about the world. So it's fascinating how how we see ourselves, but how that changes over time. So as an individual, we learn to colour or distort our truth for a particular reader. But this, does this happen when someone is telling the story of someone else? I think it's such an important thing for us to keep in mind when we tell other people's stories because, um, you know, no matter how much research we do about other people or how much we engage with them, at the end of the day, um, if you're telling someone else's story, it's still you who's telling it. So you're still deciding how you frame it or what you put in and what you don't put in. And, and there are so many ways that, you know, you can do that in a way that's, um, that's responsible and respectful, but, um, but you're still writing it from your, from your standpoint. So I think it's a really interesting thing to, to look at in fiction in particular around, um, how, how people write other characters' stories, how people, 
want their stories to be told and, and the tensions that sometimes come up. And the emotion that somebody puts, a writer puts into somebody else's life. You know, if it's a person, if, if you know the person, like, and you're writing their memoir, that's quite different to a journalist who doesn't know you but wants the story, but wants the person. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, at the end of the day, every time anybody sits down to write about someone, they're doing it for a reason and, and there's something that they want to say or do with their writing. So so that intention is also always sitting behind how we tell stories and, and how we frame people and the emotions that we include or um, the empathy that we try and build. So to build a real person, which a fiction writer does... You have to use all of those skills. And uh, Claire Valley has just done a ripper here <laughs> in the book of ordinary people. Every morning, look, we get up to traffic reports. So a gridlock in suburban Melbourne is not out of the question. But it gives a moment in time for you to introduce five characters in this book as different as anything. But they all share a sort of similarity because they all live in an area. Absolutely. And, you know, I think for Melburnians in particular, we know how we may be very different people from very different walks of life. But if there's a traffic jam and we're all stuck in it, that's that's binding us together. All right. So this is from the prologue of the book. Here they are, these unremarkable strangers caught in a moment of stasis before the everyday continues. Evangelia Kouros sits in her car stuck in Reservoirs High Street, her children bickering from the back seat about trivial nonsense and her head pounding with the promise of a headache. She watches a woman attempt to escape the traffic, zigzagging her little hatchback in a hundred-point turn that bumps and grazes a pole, the curb, a nearby bumper, and Evangelia mutters under her breath. In the Clifton Hill pool, D.B. Arnold swims his regular morning laps, his head in the clouds and his heart in his mouth, oblivious to both the traffic jam around him and the ting-ting-ting of the increasingly frustrated text from his increasingly frustrated wife, who with a first-period Year 9 history class and their child still in his car seat, will twice be late this blustering leafy morning. On the South Meringue line, Ida Arbody tears a tissue into a thousand pieces somewhere between Thomastown and Layla, anxious she will miss her appointment with her caseworker and have to wait another procession of weeks for the next. Each piece forgets itself as it piles onto her lap, for she is waiting, always waiting. In his boxy Thornbury apartment, the failed hack pulls the blanket over his head to drown out the angry horns bleating from the street outside and turns to the wall, wide-eyed and weary from yet another night unslept. And in a fluorescent-lit CBD office, bright-eyed and copied, Nell Swanson had missed the entire thing because she had been here since 7.30, tapping away at her keyboard as another day begins its crawl towards the end. Time passes, emergency response vehicles weave towards the freeway, and the North has no choice but to wait. Wait. That's what a lot of them have to do, is wait. Um... So that was the prologue. In part one of the book, we learned that they are all writing about themselves or others for a purpose. Well, we started with Evangelia. So what's her reason? So Evangelia is, um, she wants to write her her mother's story. She is uh, in the midst of um, the, the period of mourning after her mother has passed away and she she wants to tell her mother's story because she she feels that it's an important story to tell, but she just can't work out how to tell it because, like many women, her mother was 
part of the the generation who migrated um, to Australia from from Europe who um, who spent her life uh, surrounded by caring for her family and and her home and her community and and, and Leah is struggling to to work out what parts of this story are exceptional or extraordinary or, or noteworthy. Mm. She's doing all of this, but and and. and well, in complete contrast, it, uh, Nell's writing. Now, she's she's at her typewriter, at her keyboard very early in the morning, making her legal notes more readable. And her job? So Nell is a young lawyer who is um, working in, in a commercial law firm in the city. It's her first job and um, and she's finding that she's battling with with how you work within the legalese world of, of how things need to be framed. Like, I love this. She came across this word, hygienic regulation. And she said, well, it doesn't really describe one child urinating at the top of, uh, of a slide causing another one to slip. You know, it's all of this. Um, so they're all writing for one purpose or another. Part two of the book sets up the weird and wonderful connections between these pe- people. The law firm does some pro bono work while Nell's mother, Carol, decides to teach a writing course on biography. Her published book is Looking for Women in History, uh, whom history has ignored. And, you know, there's all of these wonderful connections. And then um, Ida goes to work at uh, Evangelia's husband's shop and just how you've got them connected and Rick gets a TV job on a story now he there's something that's happened to his last story that's that's driven him in depression but this old story also goes very wrong too so oh, catastrophe all I, around it does and and you know I was really interested in this idea of how we can take all these characters who are very, very different people, who are living in very close proximity in one geographic area, um, and but have very, very different things going on for them, but also showing how their lives intersect and connect in little ways and in big ways and in intentional ways and unintentional ways. And then we get the next part of why they don't want to talk. You know, Ida doesn't want to talk about her background. You know, she... Um and Evangelia doesn't want to talk to a sister because, you know, her sister's sort of doing the cultural thing with, with, and she wants to do the traditional thing, although her sister seems to be doing it better, you know, her, at least her children, dancing Greek and playing the bazooka, but not her. And it just there's sort of so many things going wrong until you give us the complete story of Madeline and that emotional break up in their marriage that was just that was heartfelt that was terrible terrible look it, it was and I think um you know one of the things and, and we we talked about this a bit earlier but was the the challenge of stories is that um and telling people stories is that you know we're all very complex whole people who have so many different dimensions and often the stories that we pull out about people for whatever purpose um we're telling them so whether it's um, in you know, in a newspaper report or a television report, or whether it's a legal document that needs to capture somebody's story in a very legalistic way, um, all those things limit how much we can actually put people's full identity into a story, and the impact that can have on the people who who you're telling the story about, because y- you need to pigeonhole them into a particular version of themselves to get across 
whatever it is you're trying to tell people. And that, that can be really damaging or frustrating for people that that's the version of themselves that's out in the world. And especially if they don't look like a victim. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I've worked in the community sector for a very long time. Um, you know, I've worked um, in the family violence sector and the violence against women sector. And, you know, one of the things that is really difficult for us is we have these ideas about what a victim looks like um, or, or what a perpetrator looks like. And it can be really, really difficult because that doesn't necessarily match up with with the complexity of who we are as, as people who, who move through the world. And um, it can be really challenging for people who who have experienced something because the expectation is that as a victim, you're going to look a certain way mm. and you're going to act a certain way and your behaviour is going to, to fit a certain pattern and, you know, you're going to be grateful for the support you receive and, you know, you're going to be humble or, or quiet or you're going to have acted in a certain way. And we know that, that that's not the reality of of how people work and, and those ideas of um, trying to force people into a particular mould can be so damaging. And, you know, we know from the media that it can have, um, you know, really, really big repercussions for people and a lot of backlash. Well, with uh, one asylum seeker, we see that because she she wants to give them a, a bigger story and, of course, then that backfires on her which is just so sad. Ab- absolutely. I mean, it must happen. And, of course, Ida, the story starts with her writing about her past because she studied journalism in Iran and she has got the most beautiful family stories. So you think, why is she here and the rest of her family back in Iran? So she doesn't want to tell her story at all. Anyway, we finally get a lot of it as well as we as persian fairy stories we get dragons and and their confusion about tooth fairies <laughs> it's just lovely um look i just thought this this story claire varley's story has interconnected five strangers in the book of ordinary people who by telling or hearing their own or other stories they learn more about themselves just a fabulous read Fabulous, fabulous, as was the last book you were in here, The Bit In Between, which also here you're talking about how to write biography or you're not, but you've got characters doing it. There you're talking about the problems of writing a book and I still love this quote from Oliver from your previous book. He wanted this book to be everything, a brilliant literary masterpiece, a commercial success, comedy, tragedy and instant classic, though on days like today he just would just settle for finished or even started. <laughs> it is so difficult to write stories and a compelling story in Claire Valley. I, I just congratulated you on this one. This is a, a lovely book. Put this one down, readers out there, as a very, very good book to read. You'll go around the world with it and you'll finish back in Melbourne, possibly at the Melbourne Cup. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Thanks, David. my author, uh, it's a pre-record, Bridie Jabour, and uh, her book was The Way Things Should Be, which was about family, and this family's gathering for a wedding, and the chaos that ensues. Is there such a thing as a perfect family? Well, in reading Bridie Jabour's novel, The Way Things Should Be, you will come across a perfect storm of dysfunction that for many families, is quite normal. So, Bridie, welcome to 3CR. Pleasure to be here. We do have a perfect storm here. One of the daughters, Claudia, 
is the perfectly average age to do such a perfectly average thing. What is uh, Claudia, in fact, contemplating? <laughs> she's contemplating marriage. And she's not just contemplating marriage, actually. She's, go- she's going to get married. She's supposed to be getting married in a week. The, the book starts off at the, the week before her marriage and she returns to her hometown for it. And her siblings also return. And so there's a lot of regression and a, a perfect storm of chaos, as you mentioned before. But there's also a lot of questions that she's still having about marriage, despite it only being a few days away. But it also raises that whole notion of tradition. So it is traditional for families to meet, but also the contemporary world about how we look at marriage. Yeah. And so, and it's about whether marriage has a place in the contemporary world. That's certainly one of the issues that I explored in the book about why are people still getting married in 2017, 2018? You know, we can live with our partners with no judgment. That's very easy. You can be legally recognised as someone's partner. A lot of us aren't religious anymore. A lot of us, especially millennials, have grown up with parents who have split up, that they've divorced. And so I thought it was a very interesting and pertinent question to be exploring about, despite all of this, marriage rates are still quite solid. The phrase you've used there, it's almost subversive. Certainly Claudia wants to think that it's almost subversive for her to be getting married, that to put your faith in someone, to put your faith in an institution, that it's going to work out despite everything else going on in the world, despite the odds being stacked against you, for it to end in divorce, despite the world being maybe on the brink of a nuclear war, we don't know. If it's not a nuclear war, then climate change might be destroying the world. To get married is a supreme act of optimism. And as Claudia likes to think, it could be quite subversive. But is it? Is it a radical thing? You've got all of these personalities involved. There's Rachel. Despite being in her 60s, Rachel remained a very attractive woman. What is Rachel's idea of motherly assistance? What Rachel is struggling with is the fact that her children are grown up. And they've evolved and she hasn't quite evolved with them and she still wants them to seek her permission for things. And despite them all being in their mid to late 20s, she she wants them to ask her permission before they do things and she wants to be able to tell them what to do and she wants them to boss them around basically and for them to do what she wants, which isn't the way most adults relate to their parents in a healthy way. But I also think that it's quite a normal thing So I think there is a struggle there to let go and let your child be their own person and it's definitely a struggle that Rachel is having. But again, in the contemporary world, parents are living longer, shall we say, and therefore still facing this struggle of when do you let the children go? And for that matter, children are staying home longer. And that's not exactly tackled in my book, but another very interesting issue about growing up in the noughties is that you can still be living with your parents and be a fully realised adult. So how is a relationship meant to work then? Because they can't really be telling you what to do or expect to be giving you permission for certain aspects of your life, but you are still living under their roof. So I guess that just adds a whole other dimension to the struggle of how to deal with your adult children and how to parent your adult children, because I don't think that anyone ever stops parenting their children. Well, there are other adult children in this story. There's Zoe. Zoe stood outside of the door and raised her fist, then she put it back down again. A casual observer would see an expensive-looking woman trying to convince herself to knock on a lover's door. Zoe had the right clothes to be sophisticated, but something wasn't quite right. She wore Italian brogues, handmade, leather, beautiful. 
but she wore them because she had seen Amal Clooney wearing a pair in a paparazzi shot and immediately bought them online, despite the fact that they were $400. (laughs) I'm not sure Zoe exactly has a problem, but she is... I think that she's like uh, many other insecure women in the world. She's still trying to figure out who she is, but she's figuring out who she is apart from her family. And she's tried very hard to put distance, both physical and emotional, between herself and her family. And she's being dragged back into it by being brought home for the week before the wedding. So that's sort of the conflict that she's having in the story, how she keeps trying to be herself and be her own person while also returning to a place where her whole identity is marked by her relationships with other people. But in forming our identity on leaving home, we simply conform to another set of expectations, in many ways, put upon us by society. Exactly. And so you, you can leave home and think that you're finding your own way and you know, I'm not so-and-so older sister anymore and I'm not so-and-so's daughter anymore. I'm just my own person. But are, are you really your own person or are you just the person that has been projected onto you by the media and social media in particular? And she's still very much figuring that out. We have Finn as well, the brother. He takes the keys to his mother's BMW. If she really didn't want me to take the car I want to drive, she would have slept with those under the pillow. So he's an undercurrent working through the story. And you've also got Poppy. And I found Poppy uh, to be one of the more complex characters in many ways. So she's struggling with her identity much more than the other siblings have ever had, had to because she's a queer woman. She's also the youngest, so she's very babied by everyone. And, you know, the other siblings have managed to get jobs and, you know, to a degree making their way in the world. And she is plateauing. She's feeling very stuck, like she's treading water, you know, she's been asked to do internships for free, she can't find full-time work, she's still gigging, and on top of all that, she's struggling with mental health issues as well. What is raised here with uh, Poppy, as you say, she had a bachelor's degree and was earning $3 more an hour than she had when she was 19 years old and scanning groceries at the checkout. She was slightly comforted that none of her high school mates was doing much better than her. Everyone had a shitty job. And it's the whole modern era where we've got very well-qualified graduates, but they can't find work. Yeah, it's the casualisation of the workforce, but it's also, uh, as technology evolves the, um, and, and robots are used, it's also about jobs being lost and the, uh, because robots are taking over or technology is taking over it means they need fewer people and we've sort of had a collision of these two things for the younger generation where we've lost a lot of workers rights while also losing a lot of jobs and Poppy is very much of the generation that is bearing the brunt of that and it's very it's very much not an uncommon story. And also then being accepted in your family uh, with that new role that you have to lead in society. So what you've got here is a very amusing situation, a very traditional situation with families coming back together. You add to the uh, hilarity or the the humour, if it is such, because Claudia's uh, best friend, Nora, uh, who is not going to be the maid of honour because uh, Claudia doesn't want a maid of honour, has just broken up with her boyfriend, But you've also got George, Claudia's father, separated uh, from Rachel. But um, he's not talking to his brother, Mick. But Mary, who is Rachel's sister, is dating uh, Mick, George's brother 
And so you've got all of these potential, or this potential chaos emerging. Uh, are they all going to meet at the wedding? Exactly. Yeah, it's all kindling for the fire. So it sounds like there is a lot going on, and there is a lot going on. But as you said at the beginning, it's a lot of dysfunction that's actually quite normal for a lot of families. But then that whole layer of the social roles, uh, like what Poppy is facing, which are perhaps the greater challenge of knowing what to do in society, how to play your role today. At its core, the book is about our relationships with each other, you know, uh, especially female relationships, our relationships with our sisters, our relationships with our mothers, our relationships with our daughters, and our relationships with our best friends. Uh, it's also about how we relate to each other and regress and we go back to our hometown and when we are forced to be with our family again. But certainly the next layer in the book is it's about millennials and how millennials are living today and how they are finding their identity today and what the world looks like for them and how they think it should look, particularly when they're approaching a certain age. You know, all these characters are in their mid to late 20s. 30 isn't that far away. And I'm sure they all had an idea when they were younger of what their life would look like at 30. And for none of them, it's not turning out the way they thought at all. Because things are changing so quickly around them. One of the last points I want to touch on here is the style. You actually have text messages sent to each other, but one thing I do want to do is read chapter 24. Rachel walked into the living room where her sister was sprawled across a ridiculous green velvet couch. Ridiculous and fantastic, she lowered her book and swung one stockinged leg over the side so she could half sit up. I've something to read you, Mary said as she propped herself up on her elbow and thumbed through the book. Rachel could make out Helen Garner's name on the front. Here it is. A crime novelist spoke at a conference about the unsuitability of his usual sardonic tone for the war story he was trying to write about young men with their stomachs torn open who cry all night for their mothers and then die. An old man told me after he had open-heart surgery that he and a ward full of other men his age woke in the dark from hideous nightmares, screaming for their mothers. I have never read or heard of a woman in extremis who called for her mother. Rachel walked out of the room. Now that's an entire chapter. What are you doing here? Don't you think it's a very telling scene, though? It, it, it is an entire chapter, but I, there is so much that goes on in that scene about... It's what a, Rachel's sister is doing to her. It's a very telling scene in that in the commentary you're providing about social roles and attitudes and you've just sort of put it in there as an observation rather than necessarily a narrative drive to the plot. It's an observation in many ways, which is so true. Yeah, it is. And I, I think it says a lot about... You know, it was a very short chapter, but I didn't want to put that those few lines in the middle of another chapter because I thought it stood alone itself. Um, it tells us something about how these two sisters relate to each other and how one can be quite cruel to the other for no particular reason, but also how she knows where her soft spot, spots are. She knows how to hurt her sister, as most of us know how to hurt our sisters. But it also provides a nuance in terms of what we were talking about before, in terms of what roles we play and what the expectations are and how women relate to their mothers as well and, and motherhood. There's a lot going on in that chapter about motherhood, about how daughters relate to their mothers, but also how mothers feel about their daughters, particularly as they grow older and perhaps feel like they're losing control and even relevance as well. Well, the question remains, does Claudia in fact get married 
readers will have to investigate for themselves by reading The Way Things Should Be. And it's a release from Echo Publishing. So, Bridie, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you. Well, there you go, Jan. Another couple of books and another couple of reads. And guess what's going to happen next week? Another couple of books, another couple of reads. <laughs> We're pretty happy here. We are Different indeed. genres all the time. Well, I was talking with Claire Varley and her book, The Book of Ordinary People by Pan Macmillan, Australia. And I'd talked to Bridie Jabour about her novel, The Way Things Should Be.